Thank you for tuning in to another episode of Before You Kill Yourself with Leo Flowers. Uh, Just a quick reminder to go to thrivewithleo.com for one-on-one coaching with yours truly. You know, I started this podcast because I myself have struggled with suicide ideation, with the thoughts of ending my life, uh, even telling my mom when I was nine, I, I didn't want to be here when I was 40. Uh, I've called the 800 suicide number a few times, and I've been a, currently I have a, a, a individual therapist and a couples therapist. So I am I'm definitely putting the work in. I'm definitely uh, uh, grinding uh, and, and, and finding purpose and meaning and, and, and realizing that it's a daily battle. It, it's a daily battle. Some days are better than others. I feel like I got sciatica. Some days are better than others. Um, but if, if you're someone who has been a therapy, been a group therapy, counseling, coaching, had a mentor, and, and none of that's worked for you, go to thrivewithleo.com and you can get coaching with yours truly one-on-one uh, because along the way, I've picked up uh, different coping skills and self-soothing techniques that I want to teach you and personalize to whatever you're going through, whether it's a transition, whether it's a transition or or a tragedy or trauma, or you know, so we can turn that into an upward trajectory. Uh, go to thrivewithleo.com, and I, you know, today's episode is so invigorating and refreshing. If you haven't read this book, uh, maybe you should talk to someone written by our, our guest, Lori Gottlieb. It's incredible. I, I, I listened to it in like less than 24 hours. It, it's so good. She's such an, an incredible writer. And I'm not just saying that because she's on here, but uh, just full of sound bites and nuggets. Uh, in today's episode, we talk about loneliness versus solitude. We talk about the two reasons why people want to end their life and what the antidote to those reasons are like how, how do we give people hope to people who feel hopeless and we talk about how to set boundaries you know in, in our in our personally and in, in, in business we talk about freedom and why freedom is such a challenge we say we want freedom but but it comes with something it comes it's there's a cost for freedom that some of us aren't willing to pay and why is that and and we also talk about change we, so we say we want change whether it's good or bad, but it's a challenge. Whether you're getting married or getting a divorce, whether you're going to college or leaving college, uh, change is so challenging, and there's a reason for that. So we discuss how how do we work through the good and bad changes in our lives. And then we also talk about how to recharge. A lot of us right now are flooded with emotions, overwhelmed with feelings, and we talk about how do you recharge, how do you renew, how do you refresh, how do you reinvigorate yourself so that you show up and you can focus on life with vitality. Lori Gottlieb is a psychotherapist and New York Times bestselling author of Maybe You Should Talk to Someone, which is being adapted as a television series with Eva Longoria. In addition to her clinical practice, she writes the Atlantic's weekly Dare Therapist, advice column, and contributes regularly to the New York Times and many other publications. She is also a TED speaker, 
a member of the Advisory Council for Bring Change to Mind and advisor to the Aspen Institute. A contributing writer for The Atlantic, she has written hundreds of articles related to psychology and culture, many of which have become viral sensations. She is a sought-after expert in media, such as The Today Show, Good Morning America, The CBS Early Show, CNN, and NPR's Fresh Air. Learn more at LoriGottlieb.com or by following her at LoriGottlieb1 on Twitter. And with that said, let's get into the episode. Lori, in in your book, uh, you talk about that there are two reasons why people uh, think about ending their life. One is because they have a nice life. And but then they think that what if they can't emerge from their current crisis, i.e. the the quarantine or a job loss or divorce. Uh, But then other people think that their life has been barren and they have nothing to look forward to. Can you can you talk more about that? Yeah, I think they're very different situations. Um, I think in the situation of somebody enjoyed their life and then something catastrophic happened. So there's a, a death of someone that they loved or they lost a job and they feel like they will never work again or they, they were you know humiliated in some way that they can't recover from. Um, and that's very different, I think, from people who have always had some sort of underlying depression where they've always felt like, I don't know what my purpose is here. I don't have meaning in my life. I don't have connection. I don't have love. Um, and so I, I, I think looking at the situation um, when you're talking about why somebody is considering ending their life is really important because they're, I, I think they're, the approach is different. Uh, approach is different in what way? Well, I think for people who know what they have experience with living a kind of life that they're excited about, um, they have something to imagine. You know, they they have an experience that they've lived that they, if you can help them to imagine having that kind of experience again. For people who have always felt like, I don't know what I'm doing here. I don't, I'm not anchored. I don't have you know, connections, they don't have a purpose. Um, it's harder to get them to imagine how something could be different. So for people who have had a past that looked that that was good for them, they can imagine a future like that again, if you can help them in the right way. For people who have never had that, it's a, it takes a lot more to help them to imagine a different kind of life, a life that they never have in fact had. You know, that, that resonates with me because uh, I also personal train and it's so hard to get someone, quote unquote, in shape who's never been in shape because they don't know what it feels like to to be in shape, to feel optimal, to, to feel activated and, and vascular or somebody who's been in shape before. It's, it's a little easier to get them back in shape because they know what it feels like and they know the work it takes. And and uh, and so it, they, they're a bit more hopeful of, of getting back there. Yeah, that is a great analogy. That's exactly it. You know, in the book, you you also talked about how the opposite of depression is vitality. And I've I've never, you know, I've listened to so many books and podcasts and and people talk about depression and what the opposite is. And but I've never heard someone say the opposite is vitality. Can you tell us more about that? Yeah, I think so many times people think the opposite of depression is happiness. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) exactly. And it, it's not. It's it's about um, 
again, those things that make us feel valued, that, you know, we understand why we're here. And when we wake up every day, there's intentionality to our lives. And so, you know, I I think when people are looking for happiness, it's always kind of a recipe for disaster because happiness as a byproduct of living your life in a meaningful way is what we all aspire to. But happiness as the goal in and of itself is usually kind of chasing something very empty. So I think what people really want in life is they want to love and be loved. They want connection. They want purpose. They want to feel like they're contributing in some way. Um, And so I think when people go into that place of depression, I I often say to people who are depressed, you are not the best person to talk to you about you right now (laughs) because um, depression distorts our perspective so much that we can't see anything beyond the depression. Um, So, and also what happens is we start to hear all these sort of negative voices, right? Like, you know, you're not lovable or nothing will ever work out for you. Nothing will ever get better. It's hopeless, right? So um, when we're in that, in that state of of depression, it's not, it's not that I want to guide people toward happiness. I want to guide them toward vitality. What is meaningful for you? What do you care about? What are some ways that we can get you connected, get you involved? Um, Because that will help to start to open up their perspective. I love that you talk about connection, involvement, and what's meaningful to you. You know, because I, I struggle myself with depression and and suicidal and suicidal thoughts. And one of the things that I tell myself is, I have to stay engaged. Like, what do I have to do right now in this moment that will help me feel engaged? Um, and I don't really think connected, but that is another way of phrasing. It. It's like wh- whatever word you have to tell yourself that kind of nudges you or encourages you to get out of bed and put one foot in front of the other. Well, Uh, right. Engagement can be a lot of things, right? It doesn't have to be connecting with another person, although often that's very helpful. Um, If you have a passion, um, you know, if you love to paint, if you love to exercise, um, if you love to surf, if you love to write, um, engage in something that, again, brings about that sense of vitality in you. And I think when you're really depressed, it's hard to engage in anything and it's hard to connect with anyone. But so that's that's the hardest step. It's like going back to your training analogy. Um, the hardest thing, I think, is starting out. You know, when you say to someone says, like, I want to get in shape. Well, the, it, the beginning is really hard because, you know, you're, you're going from like zero to, you know, you, you don't have any... Um, there's a lot of sort of like stuff that needs to happen to get you from nothing to doing something. But once you're actually doing something, then doing something else isn't as hard. You have to go from nothing to something first. So when you're depressed, if you can go from nothing to just take that one step, because it's, it's the accumulation of all the small steps that we take along the way that lead to a big transformation eventually. But you have to just take those small steps. And the, the first step is always the hardest. Yeah. What when you, when you talk about how like somebody who's never, uh, ha, uh, you know, had a, a life that they felt connected to and gave them meaning. And, and, and so they're the hardest person, they're, they're the harder clients to work with in terms of helping them find that. What, what does that first step look like for them? Yeah, well, I think that 
it's about understanding that they aren't actually trapped, even though they think they are. So I just did a TED talk about this, about how changing our stories can help change our lives. And one story that I think is really common, especially when people are feeling depressed, is that they're stuck, that nothing will help. They're trapped by their circumstances, by the people in their lives, by their childhoods, by you know whatever it might be. And my own therapist had this great analogy. At one point, he said to me, you know, you remind me of this cartoon, and it's of a prisoner shaking the bars, desperately trying to get out. But on the right and the left, it's open, no bars. And I think that so many of us, right, like we're sitting there like shaking the bars, we're trapped, but actually we can just walk around those bars. So why don't we? Why don't we walk around the bars? And part of that has to do with the fact that Freedom comes with responsibility. So if we walk around the bars, we're free, but that means that we're responsible now for making our own choices. We're responsible for our own lives. And sometimes it's easier to blame something else or someone else out there for the way that we're feeling than it is to say, actually, I get to make choices. I'm an adult and I can choose I can choose the kinds of thoughts that I put in my head. I can choose the kinds of people I surround myself with. I can choose whether or not I take the steps to improve my life and and try to reach some of these goals or some of these dreams that I may have had when I wasn't so depressed. So I think that the which most important is is that acknowledgement that wait a minute I do have agency over my own life. And then the question you have to ask yourself is, and why am I pretending like like I don't? You know, it, it's so true. And I, and I know so many listeners, uh, you know, are maybe in situations where they feel like they don't. But I, I always remind myself of uh, Nelson Mandela. And uh, one of the things that I was fascinated by was how he kept his, kept his agency, how he kept his peace of mind all those decades, you know, being in prison and, and from a young age. And uh, when I read up on him, the thing that he would do every day, the choices he made every day was to he, he would journal every day. He would read, he would exercise and uh, he would he would meditate or pray. And and I realized, like, if this guy in that situation uh, realized the value of routine and writing and 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 remaining calm, then, you know, those are those are things that I, I try to incorporate in my daily routine, uh, you know, because I, I mean, he walked out of there still with smiles and it didn't seem to have any bitterness in his heart. So, yeah, we do have choices. Yeah. You know, and I, I, I there's a quote and maybe you should talk to someone from Viktor Frankl, who was a Holocaust survivor. And he wrote and I'm I'm going to paraphrase here, but it was basically um, you can take everything from a man, but the freedom to choose, you know, whatever goes in basically whatever we put in our minds, that's our choice. Nobody else can tell us what to put in our minds. And I think that's so powerful because you see people under these extraordinarily traumatic situations who are making choices about what kinds of freedoms they actually do have, even when it seems like they have absolutely no freedom at all. One of the things I love about your book, too, is uh, with your client, Rita, um, who, uh, you know, presented with, uh, you know, uh, suicidality, that you didn't mention in there, like, any prescription drugs or anything like that. Like, you really seem to, like, dig into her life and help her peel back the layers uh, to, 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 to bring her back to life. Can you, can you speak more to like how you, what your thought process was on that? 
Yeah. So Rita came to me when she was 69 years old and she had had some marriages that didn't work out. Her adult children were estranged from her because of the way that she had been as a parent and that she deeply regretted um, and really wanted their forgiveness for, but they were not willing to give that. And, um, and she said, my 70th birthday is coming up and in a year. And if things don't get better by my 70th birthday, I don't want to live anymore. And so I really, you know, I felt like, first of all, I had some time because I had a year and, um, she wasn't saying she was, she was going to kill herself now, but what I really wanted to do in that year was to, again, focus on vitality, focus on, um, you know, how could I, she was so, she was so isolated. I had really, you know, I was really struck by, she lived alone in her apartment. She really had no friends or family. She didn't really talk to other people during the day other than like maybe someone at the grocery store. Um, you know, she was just utterly alone. And I really wanted her to like come back to life, to join the human race and to connect with people. And so that was, you know, it was very hard to get her to do anything because first of all, she was very depressed. But secondly, she really had this attitude of helplessness throughout her life. She was almost like what we call help rejecting complainers and help rejecting complainers are people who, when you try to help them, you give them a suggestion. They always answer with something like, yeah, no, that won't work. Or, yeah, no, I can't do that because, right? So no matter what you suggest to them, they reject it. It's almost like they somehow it serves them to stay in the victim position. It serves them to stay in the position of nothing will help me and my life is horrible and nothing can be done about it. And that's the litany over and over and over. I'm not saying that people's circumstances can't be extremely challenging, But then the question is, what can you do within those challenging circumstances? It's kind of like when I was training, when I was doing my internship um, and I was training to become a therapist, one of my clinical supervisors said, before diagnosing someone with depression, make sure they aren't surrounded by assholes. (laughs) And I think that's really true, right? Like there are difficult people out there. There are difficult circumstances. But at the same time, what is your response to those people and those circumstances? Um, so with Rita, I really was focused on vitality and, and, you know, I didn't know what could change in the course of a year. That's not a long time for someone who's been depressed for decades and who was so socially isolated and really didn't have any purpose when she woke up every day. Um, it was, it was a really grim existence, but so much changed more than I ever imagined. And I think it's because once she got a taste of what life could be like, if it were different things just started snowballing for her. And I think that really happens for a lot of us, that once we kind of change our orientation out in the world and the way we navigate through the world, so many things start changing because of the way we're showing up. You know, what I to, to backtrack a little bit, when you talked about the fact that we really, when we're depressed, we really aren't the best people to talk to uh, about us. And, and, you know, there was research that showed like the hippocampus and depressed people uh, hold on to the negative memories and, and just kind of forget about all the positives and, and all the meaningful memories that we have. And, and, and so there, there's so much value in uh, going to a therapist and talking to someone else. Yeah, I think that when we're depressed, um, negative experiences kind of um, like 
cake onto us, you know, like, 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 like an ungreased pan, but, but all the positive experiences, it's almost like we're Teflon pans, like the smooth <laughs> coating and nothing sticks. Yeah. So that, that's the difference between sort of the perspective of somebody who's, who's in the middle of a depression and the perspective of somebody who's not. Well, and, and I think that w- why a lot of people don't talk to a therapist or counselor or, or, or coach or someone is uh, they feel like they, uh, that their pain isn't worth talking about. Their pain isn't worth uh, an hour or, or the time of day. But in your book, you talk about there's no hierarchy of pain. Can, can you talk more about that? Right. Um, you know, it's interesting. We do something with our emotional health that we don't do with our physical health. So with our physical health, if something feels off, like you, you feel like some chest pain or, you know, whatever it might be, you're probably going to go to the doctor and get it checked out before you have a massive heart attack. You're not going to be like, ah, yeah, no, it's just a little chest pain. <laughs> right. Um, but with, when something feels off emotionally, often the first thing we do is minimize it. We say, well, I have a roof over my head and food on the table. So really, you know, other people have it worse. And we start comparing our pain to somebody else's. And, you know, so what I say in the book is that pain is pain and suffering is suffering. And it doesn't help us to compare our pain to somebody else's. If you pretend that your pain isn't there, your feelings aren't going to go away. They're actually going to get bigger because they need air. So they'll come out in different ways. They'll come out in really maladaptive ways. They'll say they come out in a short temperedness. You keep getting in arguments with people around you, or you're very irritable, or they'll come out in too much food or too much alcohol or substances, you know, substance use. Um, they'll come out in, um, you know, just like wasting your time scrolling on the internet all day, kind of mindlessly, it's like a colleague of mine said that the internet was the most effective short-term non-prescription painkiller out there, right? Because in the moment, it will numb you out, just like food or alcohol or um, getting angry with someone else. That numbs our feelings in the moment. But numbness isn't nothingness. Numbness isn't the absence of feelings. Numbness is a response to being overwhelmed by too many feelings, so you will feel numb, but it doesn't mean your feelings have gone away. In fact, they're coming out in all of these ways that are going to be really detrimental to you, even though in the short term, it might make you feel better for an hour or two. And so what we do in therapy is, is we actually help people to see that when they start talking about what is not working in their lives, that's when change can happen for the long term. Lori, I just want to say... Thank you. I mean, we're not we're not over. But when I read that, when you talked about numbness isn't the absence of feeling, it's actually like, uh, you know, just it's just like you're feeling overwhelmed and, and, and you're feeling too much. I because part of me, I used to weigh 275 and I'm down about like 218 or whatever. I played college football. And so but I still have uh, binge eating habits that I've been working through and when I read that, I realized like, oh, I'm not trying to numb pain. I'm trying to numb all the emotions that I feel right now. And, and I didn't realize like how overwhelmed I had been feeling uh, at certain moments. And, and it really like helped me like, you know, put the extra muffin down and uh, put the ice cream to the side because it, it yeah. helped me really tap into what the truth of what my feeling was that I hadn't realized until recently. Well, I think that our fear of our feelings is scarier than the feelings themselves. So, um, 
you know, it's kind of like people feel like there are negative emotions and positive emotions as opposed to just looking at feelings as they are what they are. They're like weather systems. They blow in, they blow out. Sometimes there's a storm. Sometimes it's sunny. Sometimes it's cloudy. Sometimes it's partly cloudy. That's just normal. That's part of the human condition. That's what it means to be human. And so I always say to people, use your feelings like a compass. They tell you what you want. So if you feel anxiety, say to yourself, you know, what is this telling me about what's not working in my life? Even things like envy, which, you know, may or may not be a feeling, but, um, you know, I say to people, follow your envy. It tells you what you want. So if you're envious of someone, what is that telling you about something that some dream that you have that you're not acting on? And so what steps can you take to act on your version of whatever that dream might be? Um, if we don't pay attention to our feelings, it's like walking around with a glitchy GPS. We just keep going off in all these like directions that lead to chaos or frustration or loneliness or depression. But if we listen to our feelings and say, oh, I'm feeling sad, I wonder what that's about. That's going to give you so much information about what you can do to make your life work differently. Well, you know, what I realize is uh, a lot of people, I mean, including myself, uh, we have such a limited vocabulary in terms of feelings. Like I only knew like pissed and good. Like the, those were the, <laughs> like growing up, those were the only two. Like I, I, I was like, I, like, I never heard the word sad or hurt or uh, vulnerable or expo- like, like all these gray area words. And, and I think that that's the struggle for most people in that they don't have that emotional vocabulary to even begin to like, like even you talking about like numbness is feeling overwhelmed. I was like, wow, I didn't realize I feel overwhelmed. I've never used that word. Yeah. Another word for that is flooded. You know, like a lot of people really respond to that. Like I feel flooded like too much. Um, but you know, it's interesting when you talk about people not being able to really even describe their feelings or, or know what they are. Um, I think that's so common. It's almost like in school, like you get like, you know, the, the primary colors in kindergarten, you learn like there's like blue and yellow and red, and then you mix them in different ways and you can get like purple and orange and, you know, like all these other colors. Um, with our feelings, it's like, I think that all we know is like good and bad. Like I feel good. I feel bad. Like we, it's not even a feeling. Right. Um, so it's so interesting that I think as, as we start to get more skilled at identifying, well, what, what is really going on for me right now? And you mentioned anger, and, and that's so important because there's this thing known as the anger iceberg, which is like, if you, if you imagine feelings as sort of like this iceberg, anger is on top of the water. It's the, what you can see. And it's the easiest thing to access because anger, just like you can just direct all of your feelings and, and put them onto someone else, right? You can scream at them. You can yell at them. You could tell them everything that they're doing that's pissing you off. Um, it prevents you from having to feel the more tender feelings underneath the ice, underneath, you know, the water there. And those are the things like hurt and shame and sadness and anxiety. Those are underneath there. Usually how we deal with those feelings that we don't want to feel is we get angry at someone or something else. To express, I'm just getting in the place where I can say to people that hurt me. Yes. I have to, that is the hardest when people talk about four-letter words, hurt is by far the hardest word 
to ever say to someone because we don't want to hurt someone and we also don't want to admit when we're hurt. Why is it so hard, Lori? Why, why can't I just say it? I think what we imagine that if we tell someone, if we show up, if we show the truth of who we are, ouch, that hurt me, that we're going to seem weak. Um, and yet the, that it takes so much strength to be able to say, you know what, that hurt. And it reminds me of, I think there's this difference that I see a lot between men and women who come to therapy. Men will come into my office and they'll say, you know, I've never told anyone this before. And then I wait because I think it's going to be this big thing. And then what they tell me, it feels so mild. And I have so much compassion for them because I realize that in our culture, it is so, we don't give men permission to be vulnerable. We don't give them permission to say, that hurt me. So so what happens is even if they have a partner or they have friends, they have family, there's no one that they feel comfortable saying, I want to show you this part of me, right? Women will come in and they also, I think, feel a lot of shame around sharing their feelings. So they'll say, but, the, but it's a little bit different. They'll say, you know, I've never told anyone this before, except for my mother, my sister, and my best friend, right? So, so they've told like one to three people, but it feels to them like they couldn't really tell a lot of people. And that's because we're so afraid of how people will perceive us if we actually show them who we are, if we show the truth of who we are. So what happens in therapy is a lot of times people, when they first come in, they're almost trying to um, present a version of themselves that is more sort of put together than they really feel in that moment because they want to be liked, they want to be respected. Um, and it's, you know, people are always worried about boring their therapists. And what I found is that I am not bored at all by people who are showing me the truth of who they are. If they're trying to keep me at bay, if they're trying to keep me out by distracting me with some mask that they have on that they don't want to take off, I'm going to get bored because I'm going to think, why are they, what are they really trying to say? Or who are they really? So people really appreciate, not just in the therapy room, but in our relationships, when you show up and you say, you know what, that, that hurt me. Um, what you're saying to that person is, I care about you and I care about our relationship and I care enough to tell you this. I care enough to get closer to you. Uh, you know, I want to follow that up with, you, you talk a lot about loneliness in the book too. And you say how loneliness is uh, losing the ability to be with others, but also to be with yourself. Does that tie into like the whole distracting with the internet and social yeah. media and, you know... Yeah, I think a lot of times when we talk about loneliness, the first thing that we think about is our connections with others. But we can also feel lonely in terms of our connection or lack of connection with ourselves. So a lot of times, um, you know, like people will be waiting in line somewhere or they'll be in an elevator and they whip out their phone immediately. Like they can't they can't stand the idea of having an empty 60 seconds or two minutes where they would just think their thoughts and be alone with themselves. They have to get distracted and go outside. And that's when they start scrolling through their phones mindlessly for no reason other than to distract themselves from their own company. We need to learn how to, how to keep company with ourselves in a way that feels good. So there's a difference between loneliness and solitude. Loneliness is a feeling of emptiness. It's a feeling of lack. Solitude is a feeling of being alone, but being filled up. And we all need to have solitude where we feel we're alone and we're being refreshed, we're being nourished. 
that's that's important. We have to learn how to sit with ourselves and feel good about that. And that doesn't mean that we don't also need the company of others, but it means we need some kind of combination of both. Can we feel connected to others when we're with them? And can we feel connected to ourselves when we're alone? Lori, you're so busy. You, you, you have you you write for the Atlantic. You're probably writing on like working on another book, and and I'm sure you're giving talks and you you're seeing clients. How do you nourish yourself? What what does it look like when when Lori Gottlieb recharges her batteries? I think what I'm talking about is really applicable to all of us, and I certainly do it in my own life. I think finding meaning. So I think that. I find a lot of meaning in everything that I do. And I've learned that the word no is a full sentence. (laughs) Um, That, that, you know, if, if, you know, I think a lot of times we feel like we need to say yes to everyone and everything around us. Um, We want to be perceived as generous. We want to be a nice person. We want to give. But I think that you, if you are so depleted, you're not going to be able to give in a way that is meaningful to somebody else. And I think that applies to our work lives, but also to our friends and our families. And to parents, I say this all the time to parents, I'm a parent, and you know, how can you be present for your kids? Well, in order to be present for your kids, you need to be present for yourself first. And so are you taking care of yourself? Are you giving yourself breaks? Are you saying no to enough things so that when you are spending time with your family, that you are giving them the gift of your presence and not you're thinking about the 10 other things you need to be doing and you're totally stressed out? Great, great answer. That that word no is is so powerful. You know what, what else I found out about the word no is it, it lets you know uh, where you stand with another person. Like, you know, so I forget what the quote is, but it's like, if you really want to know what your relationship is or how somebody feels about you, tell them no and see how they respond. Yes. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yes. And also, no, when I say it's a complete sentence, it doesn't mean no. And then you go into like the self-flagellation mode of, oh, I'm so sorry. And let me tell you the 20 reasons why I can't do this. Just no. Right. I mean, it's warm and compassionate, but you don't need to launch your exhibit A of why you are justified in saying no. If people really care about you, they will understand that most of the time, you know, you're going to say yes because you can. But there are going to be times when you say no. And if they can't respect the no, um, that says something about what's going on in that relationship. Absolutely. And and I want to switch gears a little bit. Because I think that part of when, you know, I I told my friends, like, I I go to, like, I got a couples therapist and I got to have an individual therapist also. And when I, you know, when I tell some people they they get it and other people are like, oh, what's going on? And um, I realized that, like, going to therapy isn't just because something's wrong or something's going on. Um, One of the main reasons I feel like people should go talk to someone is when they're transitioning from one thing to the next. Whether it's a pos- whether it's a negative or a positive, I have so many friends who uh, were student athletes and had a hard time transitioning from being a student athlete out into the real world, or from a student athlete to being a professional athlete. Like transitions are so tough for people. Yeah, I talk so much about change, and maybe you should talk to someone. I think I open with that in the in the first chapter about how hard change is, how even positive change is really hard because all change involves loss and it involves loss of the familiar, right? So sometimes when you're making a positive change, like 
you're having a baby or you're getting married or you're changing careers or whatever it is. Um, it might be a positive step in your life, but you're also giving up the life that you currently have. And so even though you think that the new thing is going to be better, you're still giving something up that will never be the same in exactly the same way. So that's part of change. And then also some people don't want to make positive change when they're in a negative place even though it's clearly a much better situation because they cling to the familiar. It's like, even if your current situation is unpleasant or even miserable, at least you know that this is exactly how it's going to go. And we don't do well with uncertainty as human beings. And so sometimes what happens is we say, well, you know, I don't necessarily like my current situation, but at least it's predictable. At least I know what to expect. And I'm really scared about taking risks and trying something I've never tried before. So I'd rather just kind of stay in my familiar comfort zone. And I would say another thing about therapy, going back to what you said about, you know, how it's it's useful to go talk to somebody else. I talk in the book about the difference between idiot compassion and wise compassion. And idiot compassion is what our friends do for us. So we say like, oh my God, that guy broke up with me again. Or, um, you know, oh, my boss did this. And we say, yeah, those people are terrible. You're right. Because <laughs> that's how we think we're supporting our friends. But what it doesn't do is, you know, what we're not saying is kind of like if a fight breaks out in every bar you're going to, it might be you. Because often our friends are telling us the same story over and over just with different people or different circumstances. There's some underlying pattern or circumstance or blind spot that they can't see that is contributing to why they keep ending up in these kinds of situations where other people are problematic for them. And so what a therapist will do is they'll offer wise compassion, which is they hold up a mirror to you and they help you to see something about yourself that maybe you hadn't been willing or able to see. And once you can see this, then you can say, oh, now I understand that I have a role in this, that maybe I'm not 100% at fault, but maybe I have even 5 or 10% of a role in this. And if I can change my role in this, a lot can change in my life, not just in this one circumstance, but in lots of different ways and different kinds of circumstances. Um, you know, you, you just released an article uh, for The Atlantic where uh, one of the questions were was um, about the, the – the, I think the sister who has a sister uh, who's struggling with anxiety and, and she's tired of helping her sister manage and cope with her anxiety. And yeah. one of the, the, the points in your response was that uh, when you are a child who had to, to p be a parent as a child, you grow up seeking uh, someone to parent you. Um, can you talk to that? Yeah. So I think that the roles that we had in our families when we were younger often shape the kinds of choices and decisions we make as adults if we aren't aware of them, if we aren't aware that that's it's like wearing clothing that doesn't fit anymore. Right. It's like you're walking around in clothes that don't fit anymore and you don't even realize that you don't even realize, wait a minute, I'm not that kid anymore. I'm not in that situation anymore. I'm an adult and I'm free. So I think in this situation, you know, her sister is calling her every day with all of this anxiety. Her sister gives her suggestions about what to do. And the sister is going back to that help rejecting complainer, like always rejecting it and then calling the next day with the litany of complaints. And you can't be responsible for somebody else's life. Right. So the sister has to make choices about, you know, 
what she wants to do in her own life and let her sister make choices about how she wants to handle her own life. Um, and so this is where we have to set boundaries with people. And I think people are really afraid of setting boundaries um, because we feel like we're abandoning somebody else when really it's you're enabling them to do something that will be healthy for them. Um, and so what I told this person, the sister who wrote in, was that the role that she had in her family was she felt like when she was growing up, she had no choice because you don't. She didn't choose this sister. She didn't choose this person. Um, but as an adult, you get to choose your family. You get to choose your surrogate family. You get to choose the people you surround yourself with. And you also get to choose how you interact with those people from, from your past, from your childhood. And you don't have to interact with them in the way that you did when you were younger, when you had far less choice about what you could or couldn't do. You know, thank. I have two last questions for you. Thank you for responding to that. In the book, you also talk about the difference. Um, you mentioned like you can have compassion for someone, but not forgive them, and that's okay. Yeah. Can, can you expand on that? So I was talking about Rita, the woman we talked about earlier, whose adult children were estranged from her, and she kept wanting their forgiveness. And what I said to her is, you can't force forgiveness. That sometimes. Um, people won't forgive you. What you can do is you can be the mother that aligns with your values now. You can be the kind of mother that you want to be for them now without demanding something of them that they actually don't feel. And so, so many times I think on the other side, we feel like I need to forgive somebody because everyone says forgiveness frees you and it makes you feel better. Okay. Well, sometimes, but if you don't actually feel that, it can just feel like a trap. It can feel like uh, you're putting on an act. And so what I, what I would imagine, you know, if I had seen her kids, I would say to them, you know, you are under no obligation whatsoever to feel something that you don't feel. And maybe what they would come to feel for her instead of forgiveness is compassion that as they got to know her as the almost 70-year-old she is now, and as they got to see a different side of her, um, they might start to feel some compassion for who she was and, and how she, why she made the choices she made without forgiving her at all. So I think a lot of times when people have problematic parents, um, as we grow into adulthood and maybe have a wider perspective and can see maybe what their struggles were, it doesn't mean we forgive them, that we aren't angry about maybe, you know, what we did or didn't get or what their limitations were when we were younger, but maybe we can see them um, human to human, adult to adult, and say, yeah, I have I have compassion for that person, even if I don't necessarily forgive what they did. Lori, I thank you for spending this time with us. I have one last question that I ask sure. of all of my guests, because always imagine that there's one person listening in who may be on the precipice of ending their life. Before you kill yourself, what would you say to that person? I would say that um, maybe... You know, there's so much that I would say. I I think that the main thing that happens in that moment is that they are blind, that they have blinders on, and they don't know that they're blind. And so I would I would want them to imagine a way in which at some point they're going to be able to open their eyes and see something very, very different from how the world looks to them now. And 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 that I know that they can't imagine it. That they And they will say something like, well, I've tried that, or I've tried that before and it didn't work, or it worked for a little bit and then here I am back in this place. And I would say, 
I still think that there's that that there's a there's a different pair of glasses that you just haven't discovered yet, and that you can get help to to find that. Um, you know, I think that I have dealt with so many people who wanted to end their lives, and every single person has said later on. I really didn't believe you or there was one night when I was really going to do it and I didn't tell you about that. And I'm so glad that I didn't. And so I, I think that it's really helpful to hold in mind that it can feel like the world has ended, that there is no hope, that everybody else out there has a, a completely different life and that you are excluded from, you know, the human condition in the way that you want to be. And I would say you are totally part of the human condition. You are totally connected because everybody has some version of your feelings. Um, and, and I would just want them to know that, that they are not alone in what they're feeling and also that they can reach out. And even if 20 other things have not worked, that the 21st just might. Lori Gottlieb, thank you so much. Thank you listeners for listening in. Uh, get her book. Maybe you should talk to someone. It's on Amazon. Uh, your website is lauriegottlieb.com. Uh, and all that will be linked in the show notes. Thank you for spending your time with us. Uh, go to thrivewithleo.com for one-on-one coaching. And let's get to tomorrow together. Thank you, Lori. Oh, thanks so much for the conversation. I so appreciate it. Thank you. Bye. Bye.